Welcome to the podcast for First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights. In this series, Genesis, A New Perspective, we are trying to breathe fresh life into this ancient text that lays the foundation for the Christian Bible. Each week, we will be exploring different ways that these Genesis stories impact us and the world around us and our ways of understanding God. I hope you enjoy. So, I think it's important that I start off this morning by telling you that this is probably going to be one of the more, or perhaps the most, I think, to date, intellectually challenging sermons that I'm going to give. And I tell you this up front, not because I don't think you're smart enough to get it, you are, but we need to all be on the same page here that if you miss the details of what I'm talking about, by the time I get to the end, it's not going to make sense. And so I really need you to pay attention. I see some yawns in the front row, but that's okay. <laughs> the fact is, if you pay attention to what I'm saying, I think at the end it can be quite profound for your understanding of what we are talking about and who God is in our lives. So today, this is our final sermon in our series on the Lord's Prayer, and we are dealing with the final petition in Jesus' prayer, the final request Forgive us. No, actually, what are we doing? We're doing lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It has been a long day, let me tell you what. So lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, this is not the end. As you heard when Adam did the rest of it, there's a lot more to this prayer, right? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, the reason why we're not talking about this part of the prayer, that last part, that ending our doxology, is because it was not original to the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. And so because of this, we're going to leave it aside. It was added many years later by other Christians, and more than likely it's an adaptation from 1 Chronicles 29.11. So this is why we're leaving it behind. But when you step back to really think about what we're requesting of God in this part of the prayer, it's quite striking what the implications are. Think about it for a second. Lead us not into temptation. That word temptation in the Greek is periosmos, which can be translated in a variety of different ways. It can be translated as temptation, trial, test, or experiment. But no matter how you slice it, no matter how you look at the word and how you translate it, when it comes down to it, what we are asking of God in this particular section of the prayer is that God would not place us into situations where we are going to feel tempted. Which raises a really important question to me. Does God intentionally test us? Does God place us in situations, and dangle temptations in front of us the way we would dangle a treat in front of a dog. I often have thought of God as being someone or something that loves us and wants the best for us and doesn't want to see anything bad happen to us. In fact, according to tradition, the one who is supposed to really be concerned with temptation, whose area of expertise that is, is Satan or the devil, not really God. But according to this section of the prayer, in fact, God does have some role to play in our trials and temptations. And this is backed up by scripture. The two scriptures that we read today both tell us how God does bear some responsibility for both the trials and temptations faced by Job and Jesus. 
Now, in the story of Job, God's involvement is explicit. At the beginning of the story, we are introduced to a variety of different characters. We're introduced, of course, to God, and then there's the heavenly beings. Now, who are they? Do you all know who that is? It's angels, right? And then we're introduced to Satan. Now, Satan is just another angel hanging around up in heaven, but Satan is separated out and kind of given special focus in this scripture. Satan's name in Hebrew literally means adversary. So his role in this story is to be adversarial, which means that his job is to question God. So the beginning of the story, God comes to Satan and he starts bragging about this guy named Job. He tells Satan about how Job is such a great guy, he's upright, right? He does everything right and basically how in God's eyes he can do nothing wrong. So Satan does exactly what his name would suggest. He begins questioning God's reasoning. Satan says, of course he loves you. You've given him everything his heart could desire. But you take all that stuff away from him, and I guarantee you, he will curse you to your face. And crazy enough, God's like, hmm, hadn't thought about it that way before. You make some good points, Satan. You make some good points. So God gives everything that Satan or that Job owns into Satan's care. And by possessions, we are not just talking about stuff like things. We're talking about also his family, some of his children. We're also talking about his livestock and his servants. And if you were to read the story, if we kept going, you would see that Satan actually ends up killing some of his children and wiping out whole areas of his livestock. The only thing at this point in the story that Satan is not allowed to touch is Job himself. But then again, God's going to allow him to do that a little bit later on. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this type of story to be terrifying. Because if this is the way that God actually works, where we are like pawns on a chessboard, then you can count me out. Because one day, God's going to be having that same conversation with Satan about me. Have you considered my servant Alex? Yeah, but he only loves you because he has a good church. Hmm, I hadn't thought about it that way before. Well, Satan, you know the drill. Have fun destroying his life. And he would. He would have a good time destroying my life. It wouldn't be that hard. This concept, this idea that God uses angels to toy with humans in order to test our dedication is a very ancient idea that, in my opinion, contradicts the entire concept we have in Christianity of a God who is loving. And therefore, for our purposes today, I think it's in our best interest to just dismiss the specifics of this story because, frankly, they lack relevance for our lives. But there is something else going on in this story, something at a much deeper level which is relevant to our lives, and will actually help us to understand this particular section of the prayer. So, what you may have noticed in this story is that God is the one who is ultimately responsible for all the horrible things that happen to Job. Satan is not allowed to work independently of God. Satan needs to have God's permission to perform the requested actions. And because of this, because Satan is working as an agent of God, we are forced to come to the conclusion that God is the one who is responsible for all the evil that is happening in this story. But again, 
I don't think we particularly like that because it conflicts with our idea of a God who is all-loving and all-good. So the way that the ancient Jews dealt with this problem was they transferred all of that evil from God onto a being like Satan or the devil. And this is why when we get to the New Testament, we see a big, big difference in the way that we see Satan. So Job is the Old Testament, right? That's what we read from. That was the first reading. And in there, Satan's working side by side with God. But by the time you get to the New Testament, and there's about a 400-year span in between these two things, you see that Satan is now an independent, autonomous being that can do whatever he wants to do. And this is because the authors want to distance God from evil. But here's the thing. Simply by giving all of the responsibility of evil in the world to Satan, it doesn't exactly relieve God of responsibility. Now, you've got to follow me on this because this is a real crucial point right here. Everything that you see around you in the world, the reason why it exists is because God allows it to exist. So a lot of times we think of God as being distant and separate from us. But what I'm trying to tell you is, is that God is here right now. God didn't just start this and just say, go, have fun. The reason why you're here right now is because God allows it to be. Everything that you see around you, every thought that you have in your brain, every second that you breathe occurs because God allows it to occur. Therefore, everything that comes with existence, whether it be good or bad, is ultimately God's responsibility. Because without God, none of it would exist in the first place. Now, what I have just done should make some of you feel a little antsy. Because I have just attributed evil in the world to God. Now, are you all good with that? Oh, you all actually responded. Last service, nobody responded. And with the exception of Adam and Chris. And so I said, good, two people in here who actually think that evil shouldn't be attributed to God. So... The thing is, we become uncomfortable with this idea, right? Because we like God to be good. Now, to understand why I'm going down this road, I have to differentiate some terms for you. There is a very big difference between God allowing something to happen and God wanting something to happen. To allow something to happen means you give permission for it to occur. You may not agree with exactly what happens, but you're not going to stop it either. But to want something to happen, that's very, very different. Want indicates desire. And so when you want something to occur, you desire nothing other than that particular outcome. So when we're talking about evil and how all evil in the world is attributed to God, you have to understand that when we're talking about this, there's a very big difference between God allowing evil to exist in our world and God wanting evil to exist in our world. God does not want you to make poor decisions that hurt yourself and other people, but God allows that to happen so that you have the free will to make your own decisions. You have to appreciate the fact that evil is a necessity of free will. By giving you a choice, God is also giving you the choice to do bad things. God permits evil to exist in this world so that you and I have freedom of choice. And this freedom can lead us to do things that are magnificently good, and it can lead us to do things that are shockingly evil. 
And it is this choice, the choice between good and evil, that defines human existence. And it's what Jesus was faced with when he was in the desert. Now, if you pay really close attention to what's happening when Jesus ends up going into the desert, you will notice that he doesn't go out there on his own. In fact, he's not even led out into the desert by Satan. What leads him out into the desert is God's spirit. God is the one leading him into this situation where he will be tempted. So again, I think this is consistent with my previous point, that God is ultimately responsible for the evil in the world. Now, while he's in the desert, Satan presents him with a variety of different scenarios. And he has to make some decisions. Now, the content, the substance of these temptations are not very important. The point is, he has to make choices. Choices. This is really, really important. So, when he's in the desert, Satan presents him with three different scenarios, and he has to discern within his heart whether or not these options with which he is being presented are going to lead down a good path or a bad path. He's trying to figure out what's the outcome going to be. Now, before we can go any further in dissecting this story, I have to say a few things about my belief in Satan which is that I have a lot of trouble believing that there is a being whose sole purpose in existing is to cause me to make bad decisions. I don't need a being like Satan to help me make bad decisions. Trust me, I can do that well enough on my own. But I can certainly understand why people would believe that a being like Satan exists. When you are placed in a situation where you are faced with temptation, it can feel like there is really something pulling you in that direction. Wouldn't you agree with that? Have you ever felt that before when you feel tempted by something? And I think the people who really know this more than anybody else are people who struggle with addiction. Because the power of that addiction can make you feel as though your free will has been hijacked. Almost as if You really don't have a choice in the matter, and you feel compelled to make the same decisions over and over and over again. But that's not Satan. That's the struggle between your spirit and your body. Now, your spirit is that part of you that's connected to God, and that's the part of you that's saying, no, don't give in to the temptation. No, don't give in to the addiction. But your body, that's the part of you that wants to give in to the temptation. It's the part of you that's addicted to whatever it is that you're addicted to. And it says, yes, let's go for it. Let's do it. This is the struggle with which Jesus was faced when he was in the desert. He had to choose whether he was going to follow the wisdom of his spirit or the desires of his body. And the scripture tells us that he does make a choice. He makes a choice to resist temptation and to follow the wisdom of his spirit. And he's able to do this because he relies on God, and God gives him the strength to overcome the temptations of his body. Now, again, the thing I need you to focus on here is the choice. He is able to make a choice, and you are able to make choices as well. And what we believe in Christianity is that God, through Jesus, gives us an example of the kind of choices that we should be making. Would you agree with that? Okay, that's basically what we think. So every time I come to this section of the prayer, where I pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, 
I am reminded of how God has given us a choice to do as we please. We have the free will to do really good things, and we have the free will to be tempted and do really bad things. But when you're tempted, which one tends to win? Do you tend to do the really good things, or do you tend to do the really bad things? And the truth is, I would say most of the time, temptation wins. And there's a very good reason why temptation wins. It's because we've inherited a lot of negative traits through the evolutionary process that got us here. Our bodies, the things that keep us here, in our genes, we are very violent, selfish, greedy creatures. That's just the truth. And we wouldn't be here if we weren't violent, selfish, greedy creatures. Our ancestors wouldn't have survived. We wouldn't have made it all the way to this point if we didn't have that inside of us. So for that side of it, it's a good thing. But it's bad when you're trying to make good choices. And so, like Jesus, we need God's help if we're going to choose good over evil. And this is what Jesus' presence on earth does for us. His life, death, and resurrection. It frees us to make more decisions for good than for evil. Now, to really, really help you understand what I'm talking about with this, I need to tell you a story. And this is a story of when I was working as a chaplain in a mental hospital in New Jersey. While I was working there as a chaplain, I ran groups for people who needed spiritual discernment. And while I was doing this, of the variety of groups that I would run, there was a woman with whom I worked, and she was in the mental hospital because she had suffocated her teenage son while he was sleeping. She was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and then she was sentenced to do her time at the mental hospital. When I first met this woman, I found her to be a very cold and distant person. The entire time I was there, she never once spoke of the reason why she was in the hospital. And because of this, I tended to judge her very harshly. I thought to myself, how could a mother ever do something like that to her child? But then one day, I went down and I started reading her chart. Now, as a chaplain, you have access to people's charts, which means you have access to their medical histories and you have access to their personal histories. And within her chart was her personal history, not only the murder of her son, but everything that preceded it. And what I found out was that when she was born, her mother gave her up for adoption. She was adopted at a time when adoption agencies didn't do their homework very well. It was very hush-hush. And she was adopted into an extremely abusive home. To give you an idea of just how abusive a home this was, from the time she was 10 until she left home at the age of 18, she was raped every single day by her adoptive father. And I am not exaggerating when I say that. I truly do mean every single day. She was a very smart woman. So she graduated from high school and she had a full ride to go to college. It was the way she escaped being in her home life. She went on to school, she met a man, they got married, they had two children, and she worked all over the world with her family as an engineer for a major telecommunications company. But then one day, all that abuse, all that trauma caught up with her, and she had a psychotic episode, and she suffocated her own son. And I remember when I closed up 
that book. And I put it away. I thought to myself, you know, I probably would be in here too if that had happened to me. We make choices as human beings. And oftentimes those choices are the wrong choices. Many people would look at what her adoptive father did to her and believe that is totally unforgivable. But then again, that's what a lot of people said about her when she murdered her son. And though it doesn't make it any better, her adoptive father was only doing to her what was done to him when he was a little boy. You see, there isn't a whole lot of justice in this world. We all perpetrate evil in some way or another, and much of that evil goes unpunished. And sometimes there are people who do things that are so evil, so far outside the bounds of what is normally acceptable, that we try to grasp at how it could have ever even happened in the first place. Our desire to wipe the slate clean and to forgive, that goes away. And there's something inside of us that says, this is not right, and I don't know how to make it right, but something needs to be done. But it's hard to make things right. It's hard to bring justice to a world that is so complicated and interconnected. I mean, it's one thing to isolate a crime and say, you're responsible for this happening. Like that lady, you could say that she's responsible for the murder of her son. But it becomes a lot more complicated when you understand how all of that abuse and trauma in her past caused a lot of what happened in the present when she murdered her son. I mean, how do you bring justice to that? How do you make that right? And the truth is, we can't. It's not possible for us to make it right. But God can make that right. Now, I really need you to pay attention to me on this, because this is what everything hinges on right here. Because God is the one who is responsible for giving us the ability to choose between good and evil, God is also the one who is responsible for bringing justice to those choices. Now, God has a variety of different ways that God can do this. God could take us and say, every single one of you are responsible for the wrongs that you've committed. God could take us individually and say, what you did, that was not right, and you must now pay for that. And that would be right justice for us. This is why a lot of people in the church talk about hell, because hell is the only way that we can imagine how God can bring justice to all the evil in the world. But the New Testament tells us that God makes a very different kind of decision, that God walks down a completely different kind of path. Rather than hold us responsible, God takes the burden of that punishment onto himself. The New Testament tells us that God takes responsibilities for the wrongs that you and I have committed and brings justice to them. The only reason we know this, the only reason we have any concept or clue that God works this way is because of Jesus. Now, something you really have to appreciate, and this is another linchpin in everything I'm saying, 
is that God doesn't need Jesus to forgive us. God can do anything God wants to do. Jesus is not necessary for that. Would you agree that God can do anything God wants to do and can forgive us if God wanted to forgive us? But here's the thing. Without Jesus, we would never fully understand, comprehend, and appreciate the depth of that forgiveness. The moment that Jesus died on the cross was the same moment that it became possible for human beings to understand how God can unwind and untether all of that complicated evil that we do to one another in this world. The moment that Jesus died on the cross was the moment that we were able to comprehend how for God, the unforgivable is forgivable. The purpose of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is to help us to understand how God is able to bring love and forgiveness to a woman who was raped every single day for eight years and who murdered her own son. The purpose of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is to help you understand how God is able to bring love and forgiveness to you when your decisions hurt other people and when other people's decisions hurt you. I stand here before you as your pastor today because I truly believe in my heart that the love and forgiveness that is offered in Jesus Christ is what frees us to make the right choices and delivers us from the evil in our lives. I will tell you, I was going down a path in my life, a trajectory where I could not stop making the wrong decisions. And when I gave myself over to the love and forgiveness that I found in Jesus, it changed for me. I could finally make the right decisions. And so what I want you all to take away today, and my hope and prayer for you, is that you might experience the love and forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. That you might know what that is in your life. Because when you can appreciate that kind of freedom, and when you can truly understand how the unforgivable is forgivable, then anything becomes possible in your life. May that be true in your lives, so that you experience the love and forgiveness of our Lord. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.fpcah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.